Hello and welcome to Scope Management and Estimating, a podcast brought to you by Quanta Training, starring Tim O'Connor and Adam Montgomery, that's me. So uh, yeah, Scope Management and Estimating is what we're talking about today. Uh, uh, for uh, This is for all the APMP scholars out there. Uh, quite a big topic actually, uh, Tim, isn't it? We've got to define scope. Uh, we need to explain the way uh, an organisational breakdown structure is used to create a responsibility assignments matrix. And there's, a, there's a phrase you don't use every day. <laughs> Looking forward to that one. Yeah. <laughs> we need to explain a number of different estimating techniques and explain the reasons for and the benefits of continually re-estimating throughout a project lifecycle and the concept of an estimating funnel. Mm. Mm. We'll, we'll leave that one, shall we, <laughs> till the end. An estimating funnel. Right. I don't have a funnel. I could have done with a funnel the other day. I tried to put screen wash in my car. And it spilled everywhere all over the engine. But Good. So, uh, project scope. Do you want to talk to me about that, Tim? Talk to me about project scope and how we go about uh, um, def- defining it. Yeah. So, I'll look at um, just the broad definitions to begin with. So, um, the scope is looking at defining basically the shopping list for the project. So, you're looking at defining the de- uh, deliverables or outputs. So the things that you're going to be creating, um, those outputs ought to lead to a new way of doing things, which will be an outcome. And then once you've achieved a certain plateau performance and the outcome has been achieved, it's then that you ought to achieve the um, the measurable improvement being the benefits. So those that instigated the project um, typically would view it from the point of view of the outcomes and benefits. So the sponsor and uh, levels of management above the sponsor aren't really interested in the minutiae of the project typically. But in order to work out the scope and to present the scope, um, you can come up with a product breakdown structure, which is uh, your shopping list. Um, and so this ought to come to a large degree from the users. Um, but there are three interests on the steering group, the users being just one of them. So the sponsor representing the business and the supplier being um, the other two. So it's not meant to be an untempered wish list from the users because the sponsor ought to see um, what has been um what has com- come from the users, and then carry out some kind of value analysis. Um, and then the suppliers ought to have a look at that identified scope and work out what's going to be feasible. But the strong recommendation is that the product breakdown structure comes first. So just looking at the outputs before you then look to identify the activities. Mm. Um, and the reason for that really is that if you go to the supplier with just uh, an ill-defined need, there's a fair chance that they're just going to foist upon you the solution that works best and would derive more profit for them. But if instead you say, this is what I want you to do, even if it's like domestically you get a new kitchen in your house, um, rather than just go into hygiene or whatever kitchen show it may well be, to say, which kitchen. one in your kitchen. Well, yeah, but you, but you have an idea about what use you want to put to that kitchen. Um, walking and uh, <laughs> eating, that, 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 that kind of stuff. But Walking? Um, yeah, don't you walk in your kitchen? <laughs> Just sniffing out for a walk. Do you have? <laughs> well, you know, it's these, not that big, unfortunately. <laughs> these, these long, these long Windsor nights are just a couple of laps of the kitchen. That's that's me done. Um, so change for life. Um, so once you've worked out your uh, your scope, then you can work out the activities, and um, the user side can work out the activities as well to a certain degree. But you may well be drawing on the expertise of the supplier here. Yeah. So, so the, the the activities of the project will be displayed in a work breakdown structure. Yeah, and so it's and it's the activities that then will be displayed in in a Gantt chart. Yes. So, but but first comes the breakdown structure, isn't it? A, a, a sort of this hierarchical decomposition of all the all the activities that are required. What kind of decomposition? Hierarchical. Oh, that's good. 
Okay, uh, what's an organisational breakdown structure, Tim? It's just a list either of people or competencies that you need to fulfil the work of the project. Um, so you put that together with the activity from the work breakdown structure, and that just gives you a job sheet um, that they give the label to uh, of uh, responsibility assignment matrix. And by having that job sheet or responsibility assignment matrix, it just reduces the risk of people not knowing what to do. You know, everybody should know what their responsibilities are. Hmm. So there's a little tool. Here we go again. It's another project management tool. It's essentially a word. It's not even a word, this one. Racy. Mm-hmm. So do you want to tell me what that's? I don't know. No, okay. Well, I'll, I'll tell them then. Uh, so Racy, uh, four letters, R-A-C-I, uh, stand for Responsible, Accountable, Consulted, and Informed. And basically, uh, for every person on the project and for every task that needs to be taken, we can cross-reference these and say who's responsible for undertaking this task, who's accountable for its uh, uh, performance and, and quality and so on, who, need, who do we need to consult and who needs to be informed maybe about progress. So you end up with a responsibility assignment, responsibility assignment matrix that um, uh, references all the tasks and all the people and, and so everyone's very clear about who's who's involved in which task and what, what their responsibility is on that task. Poor ball myself then. <laughs> and me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, let's move on to happier and more fertile ground. Estimating. Mm. So, lots of different techniques for estimating. Why don't you, you choose one? Which one do you want to tell me about? Well, I, I'd, I'd rather begin with the definition of what estimating oh, is. okay, then. that's fine. So, how, how do you define it? Well, it's you'd rather. <laughs> um I just like to hear you say these words. Well, I mean, quite often if you ask people in a, in a class, I'd say it's guessing, isn't it, or guesstimating. Um, basically, uh, we are taking a step into the unknown with the project. Uh, we haven't done this exact work before, so therefore we need to estimate. We need to estimate cost and durations and, and other things as well, but I think if we just stick to, to those, maybe uh, that's the easiest. So, uh, yeah, we're going to be estimating cost and durations so there's a number of techniques that can help us because if we just kind of guess that that's not very scientific so there are some um, more rigorous methods why don't you tell me about one of them Tim yeah so um, one of them is analytical estimating so this typically is used if you've got little or no relevant information from previous similar projects Um, so if you haven't got an archive of experience to draw on so using the breakdown structure that has got your um, your final deliverable broken down into many different sub-products or you could use a work breakdown structure for activities if you wanted to then according a time and monetary figure to each of those broken down sub-products totting it all up and that gives you a starting point but it is only meant to be that it is just meant to be a starting point that requires further revision um, and the further revision can come in um, especially with other methods that we'll just talk about here three-point estimating or parametric lovely well, uh, let me talk about one you haven't mentioned yet, then. Pa- comparative estimating. Um, I've chosen this. It's quite straightforward. <laughs> um, basically, you just look back at previous uh, historical projects. So you said you can use uh, bottom-up or analytical estimating if you don't have uh, previous projects to look back at. If you do, um, you can simply say, well, how much did the last project that was quite like this uh, cost us or how long did it take? So it's quite quick uh, method. You don't have to be confined to your own organisation. If you're in the public sector, of course, there's lots of data available and you can go uh, and look at projects all over the, the, the country. It may be you've got to apply some kind of a adjustment to it. It may be a number of years since you've undertaken a similar project, so you might take into account 
um, labour costs uh, or whatever. Maybe you're building something in a different part of the country, which is more, which is cheaper or more expensive. So there's inevitably some adjusting needs to be made. But in its simplest form, you look back at something you did like this before, and that's comparative estimating. Hmm. And should it be your last estimate? Should it be your last? No, I wouldn't have thought so. No, I mean, I don't think any of these should. Well, at some point you've got to have a last estimate, <laughs> haven't you? Uh, um, Post-projects. Yeah. yeah, I thought it would be that. But uh, no, I mean, it, it's often... I mean, you, I don't think you should try and correlate these one-to-one with any phase of life cycle, anything, but, but it's often, of course, used in concept because... <laughs> I thought that you should do that, but... <laughs> but yeah, I'm going to. Uh, well, uh, you, you probably won't have a breakdown structure, you won't have a full plan, full idea of the scope, so it may be the only way you can do it is to look at uh, sort of something similar. Yeah, and uh, so... What analytical and comparative have in common is that they are just intended to be starting points. And where estimates go wrong sometimes is that people use those starting points as the final estimate. And so the revision, as I mentioned earlier, um, typically should centre on uh, parametric and or three-point estimating. So to begin with parametric, um, bit of an odd term, um, mm. but you're trying Isn't to... Isn't there an Olympics for parametric estimate? Oh, no. You didn't like that, did you? <laughs> It's not because he still can't talk. <laughs> yeah, very impressive. Um, yeah, so with par- uh, parametric, you're trying to work out as many parameters that might have an effect on the project. And those parameters could be um, time of day, time of year. So if it was a building project um, and you were building in the winter months, um, then you would have different estimates than you would do if you're building in the summer months. So fewer hours of sunlight, etc. Um So... Certainly. It take, takes. A, I mean, it's a lot of detailed data generally, isn't it? So. It is, yeah, and, and sometimes it, it doesn't exist, in which case this does take quite a long time to, yeah. to come up with this. Uh, and even if it does exist, each project is unique, and so it needs to be adjusted. So it's used a lot. I mean, I, I don't really understand, but it's used a lot in engineering and sort of software modelling and things for, for, you know, how far will a bridge sway in the, the wind and that sort of thing. But, uh, I mean, I think if we... There's something called the SPONS guide, S-P-O-N apostrophe S which indicates there's something called Spawn, doesn't it? Mm. But anyway. Um, John. John Spawn. <laughs> <laughs> so the Spawn's Guide, it's, it's a quantity surveyor's Bible, really, isn't it? It's just full of data, uh, uh, how much a brick cost. Um, but I, say, I mean, you, could, you think if, if, a, if a quantity surveyor is tasked with estimating the materials in, say, a four-bed detached house of a certain mm. square meterage, it's mm. been done loads of times before. Um, and so they can make reference to a weights and measures guide such as that. And that can produce an estimate that they've got a fairly high degree of confidence. Yeah. And there are equivalents to that in all kinds of industries. Yes. But you can only have that if you have had a proper archive of this information before. Yes. And, and it may be that your own organisation actually keeps keeps the data themselves, quite mm. sophisticated data, so you can reference that. Okay. So the last one we can look at is three-point estimating. So uh, take it away, Tim. I did the last one. I think this one's yours. Did you? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right, then. Okay, well, three-point is uh, um, a, a method of estimating where you simply... Well, first of all, you need you probably need a range of uh, estimates. So it may be that you've gone to a number of suppliers or uh, spoken to a number of uh, people who are going to undertake the work, and you've got a range of estimates for a cost or a duration. Uh, and then what you do is you usually do some kind of calculation taking the most optimistic, most pessimistic, and uh, some kind of mid-range value... Um, there are various formulas for doing this you can find them on the web 
Um, you, you do a sum of those and you would get basically a weighted average. So it takes into account both the optimistic and the pessimistic view, but weights it towards the center. Um, yeah, anything else you want to add to that? Yeah, well, one of the advantages of three-point estimating is um, it reduces the risk of optimism bias. Yes. Um, because quite often people have a, a propensity to be more optimistic than so pessimistic. They say, and I know I am. So if if you ask me how long it's going to take, I say oh, we can do that, you know, in a couple of hours and three weeks later I'll still be trying to do it. But actually, when I teach, uh, there's a particular course we do where we ask people to run a project, and whenever I ask them to estimate anything at, they always estimate very pessimistically because they're scared. They're scared they might not then be able to meet the um, meet meet their own targets, if you like. Mm. So I think it probably depends on the culture you work in, really. Mm. Yeah, and that's and sometimes the individual as well. Yeah. So you know, some, some, somebody by nature is glass half full or half empty. Yeah. Um, and so going back to the um, the Belbin social roles model um, that was oh, covered right. in another podcast, mm. so in the teamwork uh, podcast, mm. um, one of those Classic. types is the resource investigator, and one of their tolerable weaknesses is that they can be overly optimistic. Yeah. Um, that so, is me. so you want there to be a bit of a balance, really, um, in terms of who you get these estimates from. Okay, so um, there's a particular formula associated with these. Um, I think we'll leave that for the course. We've got that in something, haven't we? Well, it's, yeah, and it's a difficult thing to, just, to describe here, but it is mentioned in um, the accompanying pre-course reading booklet. So this is the PERT formula, the Programme Evaluation Review Technique, and it's an adjunct to three-point estimating. Um, mm -hmm. So have a look at that in the pre-course reading book, and we'll cover that in the course. So talk to me about the estimating funnel, Tim. Yes, Um quite a name and um, so you ought to revisit your estimates throughout uh, the project mm. um, and there ought to be an understanding that the initial plan that contained estimates for time and cost only will be accurate to maybe 50 60 70 percent accuracy so especially in the concept phase and so the more information that is known about the project the more confident you can be about the estimates pertaining to the project but it's never going to be hundred percent because anything with any degree of futurity, you can't guarantee anything. Um, futurity, but, yeah, there's a word. Something to do with the future. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's learning ourselves. Is that a real word? Is it? I believe so. Okay. <laughs> if not, I've just coined it. Um, and so, with this notion of the estimating funnel, like any funnel, really, um, it ought to narrow. Um, so, the further through the project you progress, so by revisiting your estimates at the end of every gate, um, at milestone intervals. It just gives everybody a bit more confidence. Okay, carry carry on. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> okay. Right. So, um, yeah. Uh, Adam's researching the use of the word futurity. Does seem to be a real word. Thanks so, for that. Well done. The validation means everything to me. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, so that's the estimating funnel. And, uh, I mean, there are many other things that get in the way uh, of estimating. Um, you mentioned there that some people have an optimism bias, a pessimism bias. Um, what else might get in the way of estimating? Um, time. You might yeah. just be asked to just come up with an estimate and that's it. And there's been all kinds of, um, of surveys about the validity of the initial estimate. And because sometimes people just ask to come up with a figure and they do so without any thought at all. And then there's an observable tethering effect between that and subsequent estimates. So if you came yes. up with, you think, oh, that, that, that's going to take 50 days. Um, then you're going to be using the 50 days as an initial benchmark. Um, and so even though there's lots of people trying to pressure you to come up with a figure, 
it really means nothing and it makes the project almost certain mm. to fail That's to a certain degree you know if, if you come up with that uh, that estimate based upon really no investigation at all so trying to trying to fight off that that peer pressure to come up with I what was, could be a meaningless estimate i was reading about negotiation a while back and apparently i always thought people said the power in the negotiation well if i'm negotiating power you still with agents in another uh, life and uh, uh they would never give me the first figure they'd always say well how much do you want to pay um which which i hated so i hated coming up with the initial figure and i always thought he's he clearly knows how to negotiate this guy they were quite tough so he would make me come up with a price um but i read the other day that actually if you come up with the first price if you're the person that gives the price it's very powerful because you you're right i can't think what the effect's called but you kind of tether people mm. so suddenly that becomes a benchmark so even if you go up or down a little bit it's going to be somewhere in that range so there's actually a lot of power apparently in in being the first to come up with a figure it's kind of thing you think you know if you're going to put a bid on a house yes you know you do that think well you're going to take 10 percent off it or whatever it may well be but then your incremental bids thereafter are mm. going to be in ones or twos thousands uh, from that uh, that initial starting point and um, so it's not going to be your end estimate then isn't going to be wildly different to the initial one um but if you are bidding for a house you are putting a fair bit of thought into that figure mm. but very often in the workplace with projects people just come up with a figure that really doesn't mean that much at all mm. So just just taking care with the initial estimate, that's the key thing, because um, because if not, yeah. that can be a real threat to the project. All right. Thanks, Tim. Thank you, Adam. Bye-bye.